0: Well, we'll call him Pete. <clears throat> Name has been changed to protect the guilty. Pete was the kind of young man that most adults would look at and say, this guy could be trouble. And at the same time, teenage girls would look at him and say, hmm, he's cute. Pete worked at the radio station where I was a receptionist one summer during college. He and I started dating that summer And continued into my junior year. He was an only child in a rich family. And so he picked me up in his T-top Thunderbird. He took me out to eat and bought me roses more than once. This was highly unusual for me. And the most significant gift he bought me was a little golden ring with a little diamond on it. I found it and wore it this morning so you could see, not that you can see the diamond from where you are, but, but this, it was called a promise ring. And I assume that that's because that little diamond was to be the precursor to a larger, more significant ring and promise in the future. Without the money to offer such lavish gifts in my late teenage years, I cross-stitched for Pete a long-stemmed rose and um, put on the side of it a phrase from his favorite band's song, Roses Never Fade. Isn't that sweet? Well, the roses did fade to my parents' great relief, And that ring of promise never grew to a larger diamond, at least not from Pete. We learn in life that not all promises are kept. Promises of a future together blossom and then fade. Promises from a college that your education will lead to a well-paying job languish as the job search continues for months or years. Promises that someone will save us from the mess we have made of our lives decay as we sink deeper and deeper in debt. And that makes it easy sometimes for us to pitch our tent in the field of promises broken, where the grass is dry and brown and crackles beneath our steps. From our tent, we raise our heads slowly each day, hoping to see something green, a sign of life, a sign of hope. But without it, when our eyes are blinded, we just slip back inside our tents and sigh again. For centuries, the people of Israel had lived in this dry, brown field, This was the time of Zechariah, a mature, shall we say, high priest, and his mature wife Elizabeth. We found out in Sunday school today that the Bible describes Zechariah as older, but Elizabeth as getting on in years. Well, It was rare for a priest to have the privilege of entering the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple in Jerusalem but Zechariah's chance had arrived. Earlier in chapter 1, Luke tells us that Zechariah had an unusual experience when he was inside the Holy of Holies. He saw an angel who told him that his barren wife, Elizabeth, even getting on in years, would conceive a son. Imagine there's a patch of green in the dry brown field of promises broken. Zechariah couldn't believe it, and because he couldn't believe it at first, Gabriel the angel put Zechariah in a nine-month time out so he could silently think about what he had said and what he could and couldn't believe. Zechariah was rendered speechless, and yet When he saw his belly's wife, his wife's belly, sorry, (laughs) when he saw his wife's belly begin to grow, that little patch of green in the dry brown land began to expand. When the baby boy was born, don't you know he wanted to cry out with joy, but he couldn't, no sound would come. On the eighth day, though, the boy was circumcised and given the name John, just as the angel had instructed Zechariah, and Zechariah had silently instructed his wife. This countered the Jewish tradition of naming a child after uh, either his father or another family member. And so when the congregation who was gathered at the bris looked askance at Elizabeth and then Zechariah, he motioned for maybe a quill and parchment, and wrote, his name is John. Well, imagine being in a movie theater in 1939 when all you know are black and white movies and the fact that they are talkies now is a big deal in itself. Now you've come to see The Wizard of Oz, which begins like normal in black and white. And then... In the movie, you experience the awesome transition from black and white to technicolor when Dorothy arrives in Oz and the world blazes with joy and color and hope. Zechariah experiences an even greater awe, the awe and color and joy of a promise fulfilled. And then, like Dorothy and the Munchkins breaking out into song, Zechariah finds his voice, And he bellows forth the song of praise and prophecy. He starts out, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors, and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Wow. That we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him Without fear. Too often, fear is our driving force. Fear of nuclear weapons got us into the war in Iraq eight years ago. Fear of terrorists holds us in Afghanistan. And the fact that terrorists have no fear makes it even scarier. Fear keeps us camped in the field of promises broken. Fear of personal rejection keeps us as silent about our faith as Zechariah was for those nine months. Not only do we all develop and deal with fears as we grow up, we continue to deal with the fears our fathers and mothers had and the fears that their fathers and mothers had. Sometimes we don't even know what we're afeard of, and yet something keeps us back. Something keeps us from moving forward. This transmission, this multi generational transmission of fears that carries forth from parents to children, can only be broken by something powerful and life changing. So, listen to verse 74 again. That we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve God without fear. We have been rescued. Even though it's Advent and we are preparing and we are waiting for Jesus and his salvation, already we have been rescued from the hands of our enemies. Our personal, personal enemies aren't the Greeks or the Romans or the fundamentalists, or the terrorists, or our partners, or our co-workers. Our most challenging enemies sometimes are within us. And what we see Zechariah say, what we hear Zechariah sing, is that we have been rescued from our fears. And then the work begins for us. Our work remains that of the baby John. Here's the prophecy part. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. John's calling was to prepare the people to hear Jesus' message. That's our calling too, is it not? to give knowledge of salvation to God's people by the forgiveness of their sins? And so then later in chapter 3, here's what we learn about John when he grows up. Excuse me. John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight and as flat as a floodplain. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh, because everything is on the same level ground, all flesh, shall see the salvation of God. Once the land is flat, no hills or valleys, no potholes or even jolts when you drive from pavement onto the bridge, then the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Are we seeking that way of peace? It sounds like Isaiah's image where everyone is on the same plane. No one has more than anyone else. We all have enough. And here's an image for you. Hokies can imagine we're in Lane Stadium and Cavaliers can more comfortably picture Scott Stadium. But imagine that we are inside the stadium. It's before dawn. And we're with others all around us who are seeking peace, not just from this congregation, but from all congregations. We're not in the rising, hierarchical rising of the seats along the sides, and we're not in the luxurious skyboxes around the top, but we're all on the field. And the dawn begins to break, we start seeing silhouettes only at first. And then the light grows brighter little by little. And we be- can begin to make out the faces of our brothers and sisters. As the day spring continues, we begin to be in awe of what we see. And we recognize that even though each face is distinctive, we're all the same. We all want Peace. Our challenge from where we are now is that we want it on our terms. For instance, we want Iran to send their uranium to Europe for enrichment so we'll know that they're not enriching it for destructive purposes. We want peace, but we want it on our terms. What would be different if we wanted peace on God's terms? What would that look like in our lives? What would that look like in your life? In 1918, at the end of World War I, President Woodrow Wilson outlined the proposal for a peace settlement called 14 Points. French Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau was unimpressed and remarked, even God Almighty only has 10. How many points would be in your peace settlement, what would it take for you to find peace? Some think it would take a million dollars, pay off a house and other debts, and then everything would be fine. Some think telling their long repressed secrets would provide them with that peace for which they search. Others think finding their soulmates would provide lasting inner peace. And perhaps these are among the points in your peace proposal, but would any one of them be enough? A month ago, people from a dozen downtown Roanoke congregations gathered for a strategic planning day called City of Peace. And while no new grand initiatives have begun, there was a great sense of openness and excitement about what we could do together. To make Roanoke a place where God's peace is more noticeable. So you think about our 125 people and you multiply that times 10, and you have over 1,200 people, and wow, you know, that's a pretty strong force for peace. That day, our theme verse was from the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 29, where he says, seek the peace of the city where I have sent you. Rabbi Fabian Werbin from Beth Israel Synagogue said that day that we start by seeking for peace in the home. That peace leads to peace in the city, which leads to peace in the land. Peace in the home means that it begins with us. In Richard Paul Evans' novel called The Gift, Nathan Hurst learns that to move on in his life, to let himself be loved, he must return to the mother who emotionally abandoned him when he was eight years old. Though his mother suffers from dementia, he visits her in the nursing home and speaks openly with her about the family tragedy in which he took part and the toll That it has taken on him. Nathan apologizes to her for his part in the tragedy and tells her that he forgives her for abandoning him. And while he didn't hear exactly the words that he wanted to hear, he had expressed what he needed to. And the chains that had bound his heart and soul for two decades supernaturally. Disappeared. And my tendency was to say magically disappeared, but it's not magic. It's divine. Divine love and peace broke into one man's life, and there was reconciliation for the first time in decades. Nathan Hurst felt it. Zechariah felt it. Can you feel it? When the valleys are filled and the mountains and hills are made low, the dawn from on high will break upon us and there will be no more shadows, no more secrets. Perhaps this is the Advent season we intentionally bring to the light our regrets, our grudges, and our betrayals. And God's light then bathes us in warmth, and hope and comfort and forgiveness forgiveness these are the promises that god has given to us but we no longer need to be in that dry and brown field of promises broken for dawn has come light has come day spring reminds us of the beauty that comes when reconciliation happens. We can move forward then from that dry and crackly field into technicolor joy with greater love and greater peace. And then, as Rabbi Werben said, we cannot so silently spread it from our home to our city into all our lands. Let's pray together. God, we trust that you are a God of power and a God of hope and a God of spring and a God of dawn. We thank you for the light that you have provided us. No matter how dim it may seem now, remind us that there is brightness to come. Remind us that Jesus' entrance into our lives and into our hearts will provide the light that we need for each day. In his name we pray. Amen.